Stay hungry, stay foolish. Welcome to another installment of the Exponential Series here on The Innovation Show. This time it is part two of Incremental to Exponential with Ismael Amla. It's been an absolutely fascinating ride so far. Today is even more intriguing. Some great insights from Ismael. But before we start, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services by powering its customers by making innovative financial services available and accessible to all. You can check them out on hellozai.com. For now, let's get into part two with Ismail Amla. So in today's episode, we will look at why legacy companies fail and what company innovation now hinges upon. We analyze and debunk a host of common assumptions about innovation. We then further discuss common failure modes that sink companies and attempt to explain them through a lens of modern technologies and altered social and communication structures. We welcome back to the show author of From Incremental to Exponential, How Large Companies Can See the Future and Rethink Innovation, Ismail Amla. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Aidan. Thanks for having me back. Great feedback on on episode one. So it's a delighted to have you back. And uh, we'll dive straight in because you're over in Atlanta, and you have a limited time available. So let's jump into it. Now, we touched on the speed of disruption in an exponential era in part one, Ismail. And I thought we would begin this episode by setting some context because you begin part two of the book by saying, in the pre-exponential era, although many companies met their demise through competitors' bottom-up innovation, such incursions almost always came from within their industry and were, as Clayton Christensen documented, frontal assaults. In the exponential era, however, with the world changing in a myriad of ways, legacy companies can fail for many, many more reasons. And what's more, a company can fail much faster today. Competition is fiercer and wider. Technology is changing faster. Starting a company even in a capital intensive industry is less expensive and customer tastes are more fluid, all leaving legacy companies without the luxury of time in which to figure out how to more effectively compete against upstarts. And this is why, as you note, in part one, IBM, has been turned over is in trouble, the turnover in Dow industrials is rapidly accelerating and even companies once noted as innovators are struggling to keep pace. Some of those companies you mentioned Boeing and its 737 Max a change of a chain of cascading failures that led to the loss of hundreds of lives when fear of losing market share drove the company to move faster without creating systems to ensure safety in sustaining this accelerated development. There's a lot in there, but I thought that would be a way to tee you up to bring it whichever way you want to introduce part two. You, you set it up perfectly. We've got everything's moving really fast. People at the top of their game, organizations at the top of the game are there less and less. You just have to look at how, how quickly the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500 is churning organizations through. Then you've got this massive, disruption of industries coming together, financial services and retail, driven by technology and the changing demographic. But as you talked about, uh, you know, how do organizations react with innovation? 
of course, innovation also fails, as you, you gave a great example there. But just bringing that to life, you know, you may remember the Nintendo Virtual Boy or the Sony Betamax or the BlackBerry Storm, brilliant, or, or the Apple Newton. I mean, brilliant, innovative organizations who got it wrong. And so this is, uh, you know, it's just not about let's innovate, get something out of there quickly. There are some critical success factors that we need to take account of. And the best organizations are doing that. Let's jump into the some of the myths and some of the false starts, for example. And one of the really interesting ones you give is Silicon Valley and how many people try to emulate what happened in Silicon Valley in many ways. And I'll tee up again with a quote here, because some of our audience will recall the Halison innovation days of the 1990s when everything seemed possible and governments invented various strategies to spur innovation in entire cities. Remember the announcements about science parks and Silicon Valley, like tech hubs, and they call them industry clusters. We still hear about that today. And alas, as you say, most of those triumphant ideas have been debunked and most attempts to spark top-down innovation have quietly fizzled out, which unfortunately includes innovation labs in which some of our audience still work. There are really important lessons here for businesses and governments to learn from these failures. And I thought we'd share some of the false assumptions, the broken models and the wasted effort that so many organizations and countries invest in, but they get it so wrong. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, and as you say, some of our listeners probably are working in those regions because there's hundreds of regions all over the world who collectively spent billions of dollars trying to create replicas of Silicon Valley. Um, And you've got to look really hard to find a single success story. Uh, to, to have something that self-sustaining, innovative as Silicon Valley is. Uh, and if you, if you think about it, maybe it was easy to think about what the ingredients for innovation might be, but not how you put it all together. Because if you look at Silicon Valley itself, why is it so successful? It has a long history of attracting technologists. It's got this culture of this feedback loop of innovation with one generation of entrepreneurs offering mentoring and funding to those who come next. So, you know, when you think about Steve Jobs, for example, Steve Jobs got a computer part from the CEO of HP as one of his first things that he got that that he did. That was his um, platform to go on and do different things. Uh, and now, if you couple that with the state's unique ban on non-compete agreements, where else do you have that, right? So, go innovate, get something really brilliant, but you can go and compete with me tomorrow. Um, and and the rise of boutique law firms specializing in tech companies, you've got a one-of-a-kind region that would take, you know, decades, maybe a century to rebuild from scratch. Let's jump to the, I love this, the corporate innovation outposts. And I I don't know about you, do you remember the movie Dances with Wolves? (laughs) I thought of that, Kevin Costner out in his outpost in the middle of nowhere, and I was like going... So many, this has happened, so many of our listeners, they're stuck in these innovation outposts. And this is what happens. It's like, oh, let's put a corporate innovation lab out in Silicon Valley, because then we'll be innovative, and they'll be close to the action, and they'll seep up by osmosis what's going on around them. But unfortunately, as again, many of our listeners will know, most of these efforts fail. You give a couple of examples in the book, for example, Ford, 
where they thought they'd get out there spending millions of dollars, putting out oftentimes some of their best people out there and the best people eventually leave. And, you know, you talk about uh, dancing with wolves. I, I think about um, 1800 San Francisco, gold rush. Everybody want, you know, headed towards there uh, into California to get to get a little bit of uh, something of what was going on out there, which is really what everybody was doing with Silicon Valley, right? Let's see whether we can get some of the... Uh, high-tech silicon dust to rub off on them. Uh, and whether it's uh, it's Silicon Valley, whether it's Boston, whether it's Tel Aviv, it's highly popular amongst the Fortune 500 companies to go and, you know, go over there. The logic being, as you say, Aidan, uh, if you're present where there's new trends, ideas, talent, startups, you might be able to recognize and assimilate them into your firm's innovation pipeline. And, and of course, it looks cool when you announce that we've set up an outpost in Silicon Valley, Tel Aviv, Boston, wherever it might be. Uh, now, the experience that we had, we did the research for the book, is that the outpost fails for, for lots of reasons. Perhaps the most frequent is the isolation of the outpost and the fact that they're actually detached from the rest of the company, from a culture process, which was what you tried to do, but there's the flip side of it, right? So even if the outposts manage to absorb, absorb the local value, they usually fail to take it back to the mothership, to the large organization, uh, which is ultimately their reason for success. So, you know, we, we, we've got a couple of examples, but if you think about uh, there was this European energy, energy company decided to open up an, an outpost in Silicon Valley a number of years ago. It sent the best high potential people out there uh, for scouting, networking, uh, the people had the best uh, packages you can imagine. They worked in an agile way, very little control. So, you know, they were empowered to do their things. For the employees, it was a huge opportunity. For the organization, there were no processes and systems to integrate the outpost to the company HQ and the rest of the organization. So even when they stuck gold, there was actually no systemic way of sharing it. And if they were sharing it, there was an embed culture which rejected it because this won't work here thing. So some of the reasons why culture, why innovation doesn't happen in an organization are just not addressed by having another organization miles away where it is working. I wanted to zoom in on the workers there because you mentioned this as well. Frustrated innovation workers leave. And oftentimes they see themselves as having failed, for example, but they need to realize the organization has failed to integrate them into the business and integrate their ideas. And you say almost always these imported leaders of the outpost leave frustrated and they return to one of the big tech companies from whence they came. For example, you go out there, you start to mingle and meet other startups, and all of a sudden you're kind of going, well, I, I've had it with the bureaucracy. I'm going to join you and I'm going to join your organization. And you say that's the sad reality of what happens top talent in these situations. What's more, legacy corporations can't match the corporate the compensation packages that the leading technology companies can offer. So either they hire short timers, who may be very good, but are taking it easy for a bit in a corporate gig, or they hire those who have been un unable to stay in places like Google, Apple, and other leading organizations. Maybe you'll share some thoughts on that, because this is also a challenge for legacy organizations. It's not an easy fix here, but what is clear is that when you set up your um, outposts 
uh, or you, you, you set up your innovation centers. Um, you've got a combination of people that you put in there who are your best, and then you have a combination. You're, you're combining that with talent you're bringing in from tech innovative companies. And the reason these people are joining is a they want to make impact, uh, b they want to do work on the best uh, organize. Uh, they, they want to do things they couldn't do at the tech organization. And they have already come with an expectation of what the culture is going to be like, what the comp is going to be like, and so on. And that is where the big organizations fail because to be able to, uh, you talked about comp being one example, but you know maybe you can address comp by giving all sorts of different uh, things. The, the big thing is to be able to make an impact. You need to be able to take your innovation and bring it back to the mothership. And the culture, the process, the systems, the other talent sitting over there, the hierarchy, the bureaucracy. Uh, I mean, you need to have lots of resist, resilience and passion to be able to do it over there. And there's lots of examples. And we talk about Google Wallet later on. You know, Google Wallet might be an example of where a CEO doesn't make it successful in one area. The CEO will have five other opportunities to go and do these things. And what you see is great talent will go to the area where they can make the biggest impact, even if it's not in the right place. But I think just moving forward, and this is, you know, thinking about this beyond the book, I think there is now with the gig economy, especially in the post-pandemic world, a reality where for all organizations, whether the startup or big organizations, we have employees not looking for careers, but looking for amazing work. They're looking for gigs. And so they're going to come and go. And then they're not bothered about staying one place for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. They don't care about this idea of loyalty. They do care about going working with a company which is aligned with their purpose and making an impact. What that means for big organizations wanting to do innovation is that if they thought that trying to deal with outposts was hard, they've got to think about that more systemically because their whole workforce is going to think like that. I'm joining for the best experience, the gig, making an impact, purpose aligned. So the whole workforce transformation, I think, takes on a real different feeling because the way that organizations used to deal with outposts, they have to really deal with those sorts across all of the workforce, even if they're sitting in their in their mothership. One of the examples you give that's a positive one, because we don't have that many, which is quite a sad in this work, really, we, we don't have that many shining lights that we can point towards. It's easier to point towards the problems because there's so many. But one of the great examples you give of a corporate outpost that actually worked, but actually went way beyond its remit was Walmart Labs. And I think I think the core of the Walmart story is not so much Walmart, Walmart Labs. We, we've talked about that. But there is a clear in the gate in, uh, indication in the company that Walmart is not a retail organization. It's a technology company who do retail. And in that scenario, I think what we're finding is that then drives process change, cultural change, all sorts of different ways of thinking, which then helps what they did with Walmart Labs. So Walmart Labs, for those of you who didn't know, it sort of started out as a separate tech division in 2011 when it acquired a media analytics company called Cosmics. And, and, and then they, they create, created this uh, Walmart Labs division and became the brand the technology arm of walmart and basically what's come out of walmart is allowed them to compete with amazon and don't forget when amazon appeared they were going to demolish and uh, and take over 
all of the areas that Walmarts were playing in. Well, Walmart is, you know, fighting back very, very credibly because it has recognized that it's a technology company and not a retail company because of what the work coming out of what coming out of Walmart Labs and and the key you know two or three key things I, I think would came come over as a part of buying this company they bought a whole culture so they weren't start trying to create a new culture they bought a culture and then they supported that culture by reinforcing it by additional talent by existing talent going in there and that became the dominant culture so the dominant culture was in the outpost was in the innovation lab and it is very clear to see that that drove the changes in systems and bureaucracy and is making an impact. So as you think about Walmart and you think about how they do um, self-checkouts, as you think about how they do the analytics to target customers, as they think about how they do loyalty, customer experience, delivery, all those things, all of that is from this outpost changing Walmart itself to make a change. I love that. And because the real lesson I took from that was, it was the reframing of what we do, what 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 business we're in was one thing, but then also the culture. And actually, can you buy in that culture almost like Amazon and Zappos, for example, buying in culture. But next, let's talk about the folly of dedicated top down corporate innovation teams. And I am sorry, to many of our listeners who are these people and who work in these teams, but Ismail, and his co-authors share the follies of this. And here we need to bear in mind that the vast majority of corporate innovation efforts fail. That's where we're starting from. 90% is what they reckon fail. And you see this as one of the big reasons for failure. I think what these reports are saying, and I think what a lot of us know through hard experience is when we go out and say, okay, guys, let's innovate. Innovation doesn't happen. Uh, and that is, you know, the extent of top-down innovation. Now, um, there, there's a few things I think we need to think about here. There's a, the, the idea of what are we innovating on? Do we give people the time to innovate? Do we have people with the right mindset to innovate? Do they have the skills capabilities to innovate? And do they recognize that innovation probably doesn't just come from the team we have, but through a wider ecosystem, which then lends itself to the fact that uh, with we're bringing thinking of some of the Silicon Valley values here, where competition, cooperation, partnering, all sorts of merge together, and you need to trust that you're going to get great ideas from everywhere, and you're going to work out a way to compete with the same people as you partner with, and that's you know that's the systemic change of culture and how you lead an organization. And so I think it's one thing to say, okay, let's go and get these talented people who are going to bring different things to how we think, which is what innovation is around. Then let's work in different ways. So sprints and everybody talks about agile. Well, I mean, you know, when you talk about agile and you talk about sprints, have you reflected that in all of your process in your organization? Or, or, or are you saying, let's innovate, but I don't actually want to wait. I don't want to change the quarterly governance. I don't want to change the way we do project management and dashboards or the way we give money out. Are you, when you talk about empowerment, which is part of the culture, empowerment means people make decisions and they fail. What do you do with that failure? Uh, and everybody says, yeah, we will, we will really respect failures. Okay. How many promotions have you made with people who you said, go empower, go innovate, you failed? but you did the right thing. So, you know, symbolically, I'm going to promote you. 
How are you going to incentivize this innovation over and above people doing their day-to-day job? Uh, or when push comes to shove, are the leaders saying, we need to make this quarter? Of course they're saying we need to make this quarter, right? So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that need to change around culture, talent, incentivization, agility, and so on, ecosystem, um, that really isn't just about, doubt, you know, leadership saying, okay, people, we need to innovate, which is this uh, top-down corporate innovation. It's really the behaviors and the reactions to failure are so important. And one of the great examples you give in the book is the Google Wallet. And, and I'm jumping ahead to the failure here and Google Wallet because you mentioned them both. This was a failure. And what happens to the project leader? He leaves and goes and creates a startup as well. So maybe we'll share a little bit on that and your viewpoint there. If you think about Google Wallets, it's clearly the concept of mobile payments was not wrong, right? Uh, since Apple... I think launched in 2014, um, they've gained ground in mobile payments, even though there was lots of skepticism at the beginning of the time. I think tens of, I'm certainly a user, tens of millions of people use it every single day. Uh, and contactless payments in Europe, especially, has really taken off. In China, actually, it's off the, off the charts, right? Because that is how people work. Even large retailers like Starbucks and Walmart have successfully marketed their branded mobile payment applications. So, you know, what was it uh, around Google Wallet that didn't work? Uh, It had clearly seen the future, built a product that worked well, but what had gone wrong? Essentially, if you try and net it down, what had gone wrong is that Google had insisted that the wireless carriers, the banks, the payment processing entities share purchasing data with Google. They had a dependency on somebody else really diluting their business for them to be successful. Now, this is consistent, of course, with the entire Google's business model, right? They give away free services, collect data, use data, monetize that data. Uh, and, and in doing it in this way, of course, it the, the whole dependency chain, the whole value change, were, we're just not up for playing ball in that. But there were some other things that were, that were happening. So Google, while it landed 2011, before smartphone uh, penetration was complete, so only two-thirds of the population of the developed world had them very different today, of course. Uh, it depended on point-of-sales terminals capable of contactless communication. Again, that wasn't as much as it is now. Uh, that became widespread spread, spread in the USA after 2015. So in terms of timing, Apple had it right, right? More smartphones, more pods that could communicate with Apple and not dependent on data from the value chain. Three big things, same idea, different implementation, and I think we've got we've seen very very different results. Yeah, it's a great example of a an organization, and you see it the whole time in your work, where you figure a way of doing something. It's successful. It's what you did in the past, and then all of a sudden, it's like the Walmart Labs, for example, where a technology company, and then you have people in the organization. What we're retailers, and it, that's the difficult part, isn't it, Ismail? It's it's rewiring how people think or helping them let go of the way things used to be and go that model's defunct now we need to introduce this new model and there's always this messy middle between those two jumps it's, it's really really interesting that point Aidan, because as we talk to clients let's say we're talking to a bank let, let's say we're talking to a retailer and we say you know you've got so much data on your customers 
you could really advise your customers to think about when you buy X, Y, and Z, uh, do you want financial services products? Do you want saving products? Do you, can, can you get discounts? Because we've got so much data. We know that you're buying a uniform every year in August for a four-year-old. The next year, you're buying it for a five-year-old. So we know you're going to buy it for a six-year-old. We could help you save for that. We could help you with financial service product. Or you can go to a bank banker and say, you, you have so much data, you could, you could do so much more with it. And as we talk to these organizations and you think about why aren't they doing this, it is because of the point you made. One set of organization is thinking like a retailer. Another set of organization is thinking like a financial services organization. The customer has moved on. They're thinking about life. I want you to think about my life. I don't care that I go, I bank with Barclays, I shop at Asda. I want you guys to talk together using the data I give you permission to use to make life the easiest it can be for me. And so I think the innovation is powerful around business models. It's not even around feature functionality. It's around how do you change the way that you monetize the data rather than get better in the industry that you're in. That's a great point. And I, I love the story. And many of our listeners won't be aware of this, although they will have used it and will have been sick of family quizzes that were on Zoom in the, in the early days of COVID. It's like, oh, not another family quiz. God damn it. Uh, I'll pretend my computer's broken. And then then business started to get in on it and kind of go, we have a poker night. And you're going, no. Anyway, so, but Zoom is a fascinating story in this case in point is that our, our customers don't like our product anymore. Even though, like Google Wallet, we were far ahead of the game. This is Cisco with their acquisition of WebEx. Streets ahead with telecom, teleconferencing. They had a, an aqua hire with that acquisition, which was Eric Yuan. Bring him into the organization. He's like, look, this product needs work. It needs investment, etc. Customers aren't happy and it's really annoying me. Jumps up and down and down. And I'll let you tell, you, tell our audience how the story panned out. Yeah, and, and Eric Wan, by the way, is a great fan of the book, and he sent us. Uh, he, he was sending him a copy of the book, and then we he asked us to send it to all of his leadership team. Uh, he sent us a photograph uh, of of them uh, with with the book. So we are a big fan of Eric, and you know, Eric was one of those. I mean, it talks to a lot of the lessons we talked about, which is um, talent will talent and ideas and the getting these ideas into decisions and actions will determine success. And what happened with Eric is that, um, you know, Eric said, look, this is the feedback we've got getting from our customers, which says actually they're quite frustrated with how this video conferencing technology works. Uh, and of course, um, they didn't listen. So he went and created his own firm. He owns 22% of, of Zoom. And I think in... Uh, I think that I think they had two million new users per month as we were going through the pandemic, uh, which was sort of all of 2019 was two million users and then two million users per month as we were going through the pandemic. And you, you could see the market valuation of that company. Uh, and 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 I think a great example of um, what goes wrong in large organisations when even somebody as senior as talented. Um, as identified, you know, he, he was very high up in that organization, couldn't get his message across for the organization to act on it, maybe because of different priorities, uh, maybe because of culture. Uh, and 
the innovation works elsewhere. And of course, we, we've seen the results of how successful Zoom has been. Just on that point, and you don't go into that in this section of the book, but how best to get buy-in from senior management? So Eric, we, we don't know what on, went on behind closed doors there. I'm sure he gave it his best shot. But many times, if I look back on some of the roles I've had, I look back with empathy and kind of go, well, maybe I didn't put it in the language that they understood it, or maybe the platform wasn't burning enough for them to actually make a change in the first place. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's no one answer to this, Ed, and as you'll know, because, you know, if, if, as, as we have been through this experience, there's always good reasons why not to do something. Uh, you know, people are not making bad decisions. They're not bad executives. Um, I think, I think, um, some of it is predetermined. So if you have a culture in the board, in the exec leadership team, which is around uh, managing today, which is around mitigating risk, which is around reacting to the business that's presented in front of you, then you know, you've got a, a uphill task, as we've seen in a lot of these innovators who leave to do this innovation elsewhere. Um, having said that, I think increasingly, I don't know what you're finding, I'm sure you're finding it through these discussions on the podcast, that increasingly boards are saying, we recognize that we don't even know what the questions are, never mind what the answers might be. And we're, I mean, you know, I'm involved in a couple of sort of government initiatives as well in the UK. And we even find the, this at the government and the department, uh, you know, large, large departments who are saying, look, we, we don't know what we don't know. And so we need to get some external help to be able to allow us to identify what the potential burning platforms might be or the potential current opportunities might be. So I think you've got to identify the opportunity or the burning platform. Uh, and that is step number one. And, and we sort of, as innovators and people who want to do these things, we run away with actually doing the plan and execution and getting frustrated. And we've not moved past point number one of, of doing any change, which is, getting somebody to believe that change is needed. Uh, and so there's just one lesson. I think the one lesson is, you know, have you marked who can help make a decision? And does that person believe there's an opportunity or a uh, potential burning platform? And if the answer is no, I would say go back to start. Right? Spend as much time on that as you are doing in building your idea though. Otherwise, it, we're not going to get anywhere. I've, I've, I've sort of personal experience of failure in that lots of times the absolute same here and that's why i'm so interested in it because i'm i'm, I'm more and more learning that you got to start with a problem and it needs to be a their problem not one you perceive that they haven't even got to yet it's it's almost like and and this is not uh i say this with humility it's that you're at a different level of consciousness to tuning into changes in the environment but oftentimes you can't articulate that back to the organization in a way that they actually care. <laughs> it's not even that they understand. It's like they don't care. I think the other thing is they might care, but they are measured on a different set of metrics. So if you've got a board and an exec team who are measured on quarterly results and you say, look, give me an extra 10 million. I think I can create something in three years time. I mean, it's just a priority issue for them. So I think, you know, a lot of this is, allowing the whole organization a to understand there's an opportunity or a problem here 
And B, how are we going to create this five to 10 million to create this business that's going to create this opportunity, which is going to take time. So, so I think as, as people who are creating this disruption, we need to understand the mechanics of how this is all going to be paid for and give it enough time and you know, uh, opportunity to blossom rather than come up with a great idea and say, you know, I need this investment in the next quarter, otherwise I'm going to lose my talent. Nobody can really do anything about that. And we've all done that, right? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. And, and the other thing I've been guilty of is just going along with a project because I've got some buy-in for it in the first place. And I'm like, just get a finish, get out there so I can hang my hat and kind of go, look, we did that in 2012 or whatever. So that's another, uh, anyway, we could talk about that all day. I, I wanted to mention uh, another challenge, I suppose, for legacy players, which is emerging business models or business models that we just can't get our head around free, for example. But one of the really interesting cases that you cite in the book is an ex a success story that comes from China. And this is the Xiaomi phone. You tell us Xiaomi is the biggest smartphone maker that no one ever heard of. In China, Xiaomi shot from obscurity to become the largest maker of smartphones in less than a decade. Often criticized as an Apple copy copycat, Xiaomi produced slick phones with beautiful designs running a custom version of Android. Those who dismissed Xiaomi as a mere copycat missed a key fact, you tell us, that it was an entirely new and different type of smartphone company, unlike anything seen before. You use Xiaomi as a way to show how the rules of the game have changed dramatically. Brilliant story. I think this is uh, you know, absolutely genius. So here we have a phone maker, which is the quality of Apple putting out new phones monthly. So we've got Apple's coming out 12 months, 18 months, new iPhones, I mean, coming out 12 months, 18 months, monthly, right? They also, the product design comes from their customers. So they have these online forums, millions of customers who are highly active, who are saying, this is what you need to have in your in your uh, in your product. So it's, it's not a stretch to say that the, the masses are the most influential product designers. They also have a different business model, which is they actually sell the phone at cost and the profit comes from the content uh, and the applications run on the phone, right? So this is, you know, as you can see, uh, some of the stuff around Apple App Store and some of the other app stores, the Android app stores as well. Um, but whether it's online music, videos, high designer clothing, even furniture, um, or, you know, the, the, that re represents some sort of profit that they, that, that they pick up in terms of an as-a-service type of subscription model. Uh, and, and so you've, you've got uh, Agile coming to life. Monthly, you get a new phone. You've got culture coming to life. You're listening to your customers. Uh, so there's this crowdsourcing going on the best brains in the world saying this is what you should have in your phone. And then you've got crowdfunding coming to life, which says, and the way you're going to make profit is by getting really innovative in terms of what you put on the phone. Um, and so again, I think what we've got here is a business model innovation, not really a, a, a phone that has a new feature function or it's bendy or it has, you know, this is about how we get it out there, how we build it and how we make money on it. Fantastic, fantastic example we thought. It's an absolutely great example. The last thing I thought we'd share, not a story this time, but I, I love the, I love what you call this, 
the seven deadly sins of stasis. <laughs> and I apologize in advance for those people who work in legacy organizations who are guilty of some or all of these. But I mentioned it in intro to part one. And I absolutely loved it. Perhaps you'll change this. These are the seven deadly sins that kill change efforts. Maybe you'll share at a top level each of the sins and we won't go too deep into it because we won't have time. And then we'll, we'll end today's show. Yeah, and, and I think a number of them actually we've picked out as we've talked through the last two episodes here. And so unwillingness to listen, Eric Wan, Zoom, great example. Um, you've got a great idea, but nobody listens. Lack of patience. Um, and, you know, here's an innovation project. You said it was going to deliver, but it's going to take longer to deliver. And, you know, we, we can look at organizations where there's been a lack of patience, Tesla, Apple, big organizations where, you know, you could say you wanted success earlier and over the longer term, you got the success, uh, lack of distance and lack of resources. So, um, you know, there's a balance between how closely you do innovation or how much separation you give them to do it in their own way with their own set of uh, skills, uh, own talent, own processes, own way of working and so on. Uh, and, you know, you're trying to keep too tight uh, a, a rein on this. Wrong people in the wrong role. So, you know, you could have the uh, the most successful senior vice president of product management in the legacy organization and putting him or her as part of the uh, innovation product might not work, especially if this person is, you know, not really willing to unlearn, relearn. Um, lack of accountability. Another another issue is, you know, while you set off and say you're empowered to do your own thing, if there's no deliverables attached to it with timelines and costs and profit and all the rest of it, that actually spins into a failure as well. And then we just talked about lack of political support, because as you go through these examples of creating, um, you know, great ideas, taking them to market. We talked about Amazon Prime last time. I, I really think that's a great example. That was supported by Jeff Bezos himself. Right. As you can, you can you imagine that you're going through the Amazon Prime business case. We're going to send everything to free for hundred dollars a year, really. You know, the CFOs and the ops people and the supply chain people and the product, everybody will be saying, you are having a laugh. But the political support is probably what got them through. And I think there's great examples of that. So those were the those are the seven deadly sins. Love, love it, love it. And <laughs> this, following the seven deadly hills will land you in the hall of toast. And Ismail, in our last episode, I thought we'd discuss how companies can strike the balance and provide a playbook for managing innovation effectively and efficiently. That that's what we have time to look forward to. to. Before we sign off, where can people find you to find out more about talks, keynotes, maybe future consultation, whatever it might be? Yeah, um, LinkedIn, uh, Ismail Amla, or Twitter, Ismail Amla. Uh, look forward to connecting with people who've got the same sort of agenda and passion. An author of From Incremental to I Exponential how large companies can see the future and rethink innovation. Ismail Amla, thank you for joining us. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Enjoyed that. I hope you're enjoying these episodes on the Exponential series here on the Innovation Show. What a fascinating insight again by Ismail Amla. I want to remind you there's a copy of his book up for grabs. If you just sign up to the Innovation Show.io newsletter, you'll be in the hat to win a copy of this book. As a close off today, I just want to thank, as always, our sponsor Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services 
and powering its customers by making innovative financial services accessible to all. Payment needs today at hellozide.com. See you next week for the finale of Incremental to Exponential.